You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes! And welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, not Bill and Ted, although I do hope that it is an excellent adventure. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode what? What episode is this? 386? Can that be? Well, indeed, it is. Not only can it be, it is episode 386. Today is Monday, May 9th, 2022. Yesterday, of course, was Mother's Day in America. And of course, as is proper, we celebrated my wife, Lauren Elizabeth Mullet. We had hamburgers. We had fresh fruit. It was a good time. And we are so very, very thankful for her. It is not an easy thing. It is not necessarily a feat that comes with high praise in all quarters to do what she has done, what she has chosen to do, that is to be a mother. But more and more, I do think that she gets more credit from outsiders. There's more of a cheerful and complimentary response when people she encounters at the store or out in public or at social gatherings find out that not only is she a mother, but she's the mother of eight. There's much more of a tendency, it seems to me, as time goes on, especially over the past two years, for people to say, wow, that's great. That is really wonderful. Especially older women, even older men, will say, you know what? If there's any regret that I have about when we were having children... I regret that we don't have more children, that we didn't have more children. So good on you. That's really good that you have eight children. Wow, you look so young. You don't look like you're old enough to have eight children. She very often gets the question of, is this your first? If people meet her and she only has Andrew with her. Eli was telling me, uh, it was either yesterday or the day before, might have been the day before yesterday while we were building the basketball hoop, finishing it up in the backyard. But he said that somebody at the grocery store one time told him that his mother looks like she could be his sister. Which, of course, he's just like grinning and shaking his head like, I don't know what to say to that. Uh, Thanks, I guess. But that is to say, she does look young. She looks young. She is not as young as we once were, but I think that having all these children has in some ways contributed to both of us starting to sprout gray hairs. I am just a little older. I'm six months older, thereabouts, and I'm 35, if that gives you any clue. I won't tell you how old Lauren is going to be later this week, but her birthday is on the 12th, and I'll just let you do the math and figure that out. But I really don't think that we need to make such a big deal out of age. I don't think that age is the best measuring stick 
for how mature someone is or where they should be at in life. Obviously, there are limits to my saying that, you know, somebody who's an infant can't really be expected to go out and get a job and start, you know, supporting themselves. Obviously, somebody who is advanced in years, hopefully has learned a few things, but wisdom doesn't always come with age. That's something that even the Proverbs, even God's word tells us, wisdom does not always come with age. But hopefully, by God's grace, we do get wiser as we get older. We are getting more experienced in any event. Hopefully, we're learning the right lessons. Hopefully, we are being excellent to one another. But then, that's the thing, right? We're not always excellent to one another. And sometimes, doing well by some people means that you are prioritizing certain relationships over others. And so what do you do in those situations where you can't make everybody equally happy? You can't satisfy everyone equally. How do you break ties? That's really what I want to talk about in this episode with a special emphasis on our obligation, our duty, our responsibility to our maker, to our creator, to whom we belong. Wisdom is in living well and relating well to reality as it is. That's really the summary of wisdom that I could give you that's most succinct. Wisdom has to do with relating well to reality. Now, given the fact that we are not the only beings, thankfully, who inhabit reality, a large part of wisdom has to do with navigating relationships. If we don't know how to manage and steward and take care of our relationships, we're going to have some major problems with making wise choices. We're we're just not going to be able to do it. But so far, and nobody should want to just be a complete hermit, live off by themselves, be content with that, be completely alone. Yes, there is a time for being by yourself. Absolutely. Even Jesus sets that example when he goes off by himself sometimes just to pray, to be alone with the Father. He has been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been raising the dead. He's been crossing swords with Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. And every now and then, the disciples are just not able to find Jesus because he got away. He went off by himself. Even right after he is baptized by his cousin, John, John the baptizer, John the Baptist, if you will, especially, actually, especially after he's baptized by John, he goes off in the wilderness by himself for 40 days to be tempted. And there is an important part of relating to reality as it is wisely that should involve us getting away, unplugging, enjoying some alone time with the Lord, praying, studying, meditating, asking the Lord for wisdom. Absolutely. But that should be, certainly in my view, as a Christian, that should be the exception rather than the rule. The rule is we were made for relationship and for community and for family And the exception is not to be missed that sometimes getting 
off by yourself for short spans is good to reorient. I would say it's kind of like fasting, actually. But when we are fasting, let's say getting away from food and drink for a period of time to pray, to devote ourselves to prayer, we don't make that perpetual and neither should we make getting away from relationships and other people perpetual. We need to be in community. We need to be in family. We need to be in relationship. But what do you do when not everybody always gets along, when not everybody always sees eye to eye, when there are sometimes disagreements, when there are sometimes tall orders, when there are sometimes unreasonable expectations, when there are sometimes uh, you know, sin issues, someone has sinned against someone else, and that needs to be addressed. So what I want to do in this episode is I want to go through the various categories of relationship and talk about priorities. How do we break ties? And what I mean by that is not break the ties that bind us rightfully to one another, but how do we figure out what the tiebreaker is when our priorities need to be clarified? When this relationship is requesting and requiring such and such of me, and this other relationship is requesting such and such of me. How do we decide if, for instance, as a married person who also has parents, there is a potential conflict between what our parents want us to do and what our spouse wants us to do or needs from us? If we are parents and married, how do we decide How do we break ties when something our child wants from us conflicts with something that our spouse wants from us? For that matter, let's say we're in church and something that the broader society around us is expecting of us conflicts with what our church is expecting of us. So here's what I've done. To answer all of the above and to hopefully give a framework that's helpful for plugging these conflicts, whatever their particulars are, whatever the specifics are, for plugging those conflicts in and then solving for X, coming up with peaceable, wise, God-honoring solutions. I've got about two pages typed up into a Word document here of passages that came to mind as I was thinking about different categories of relationship. So first of all, there are two big categories when it comes to relationship. We were made for relationship and there are, as I see it, two big categories of relationship in our lives. The first is our relationship with our maker. And that's categorically different. It is in a separate category. Our relationship with our maker has to be definitionally in a league of its own Because God is in a league of his own. He is categorically different from us. That's part of what it means that he's holy. He's set apart. Also, just definitionally, he is the supreme being. He is the sovereign. He is the Lord of all creation. You should relate to him differently than you do, let's say, uh, your second cousin. 
right? You should have a great deal more reverence for God than you do for your neighbor two houses down, however nice he is. And in my case, I happen to have a really great neighbor. We have great neighbors two houses down that we love very much. But if they or us start relating to one another as we relate to God, that's not appropriate. If we start relating to God as we relate to one another in all ways, that's not so good. So also my wife, right? I, as much as I love my wife, if I start relating to her as if she and God are in the same category, we have trouble. And we will have trouble. We will have unmet expectations. We will have disappointment. And that disappointment will turn to bitterness. Now, on the reverse side, if I start relating to God as if there's a one-to-one ratio of how I feel towards my wife and how I should feel towards God, then so also my expectations will be askew. Uh, my, my understanding of God will be very uh, far short fall very far far short of uh, what it ought to be. So just real briefly, because there's a lot of verses to get through in the time that we have for this episode, there are two passages of the scriptures that I think sum up very neatly what our relationship with God should be thought of as, or how it should be thought of. Uh, first is Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. This is an instance where Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And this is kind of a gotcha question, or it's intended to be a gotcha question. They didn't know who they were dealing with, apparently, but this was supposed to trip Jesus up, and then he answers it deftly, and they can't fault his answer because he's spot on. He's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And with all your strength. Mark 12.30 is where you can find that, but it also shows up other places as well. Same also for some of these others. You will find parallel uh, phrasing, parallel accounts in others of the Gospels. Uh, Sometimes what you'll find in the New Testament epistles I'm going to be quoting, uh, what you'll find is that they quote back uh, to the Old Testament law or the prophets etc., etc. So I'm going to give a reference, and it isn't necessarily the only reference if you find it somewhere else as well. Uh, Good. But here we have, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's pretty exhaustive. If there are four aspects that make up your being and who you are, uh, this covers all of them. And I can't think of a fifth dimension to our personhood. I think this is pretty comprehensive. The first and greatest commandment is to love God with everything you've got, if you will. And then John fourteen fifteen, also helpful here. Well, what does that mean? Like, so the question could be asked, what does it mean that we would do this thing, that we would love the Lord our God with everything we've got? How do we love God? Well, John 14, 15 tells us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the antinomian lawless crowd, the anarchists are quick to say, oh, whoa, whoa, we're under grace. We're under grace. Oh, don't, don't talk about law here. We're saved by grace, not by works. Yes, yes, that's true. But 
if we are truly saved by grace through faith, that faith cannot be absent works. Yes, we are saved by grace, not of works. It is God's grace. It is God's works. But our faith alone will never be alone. It will always be accompanied by works as well that demonstrate that, yes, indeed, in fact, we do believe in God and we do fear him and we do honor him and we do love him. So that's the first big category. You love God. In a tiebreaker between loving God and loving anyone else in life, I mean, you can't get any more comprehensive than loving God with everything you've got. So then if there's ever a conflict between either obeying God or pleasing some other person who is not God, loving God has to win out. That's, that's your tiebreaker. Now, from there, it can get a little more complicated because part of how we love God is how we love one another, right? So, it, so it's not like you can just dissect this and put this component over there off by itself, divorced from the rest, and expect that it's going to function and work and operate. But the way in which we love one another will be markedly different than what it otherwise would look like if we love God, first and foremost, if we love God with everything that we've got, the way in which we love one another will look markedly different because God does tell us how to love one another. He gives us specific principles, rules, prohibitions, commands, how we should love one another, how we should relate to one another. So within the broad category of everyone else. So we got two categories. God belongs in one category all by himself. And then everyone else is in the next category, the second category. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine is the second part of the answer that Jesus gives to this entrapping question found in one of the other gospels, obviously. I quoted Mark before, but the same story The same incident is reported in Matthew as well. Jesus says, the second is like it. That is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now elsewhere in the Gospels, questions are asked of who is my neighbor? But I think if we can think rightly about this, it's anybody that's in your proximity, anybody that you're interacting with, anybody that you have anything to do with. And I think that the closer they are, the greater the responsibility is. The more opportunity there is, the more occasion there is to actually make good, but also to uh, the more that we can think of those other people, other men, women, and children as our neighbor, the closer they are to us, both in terms of physical proximity, in terms of spiritual proximity, the closer they are, the more so it applies that they are our neighbor. Now, we are not, I hope this goes without saying, we are not omnipresent like God is. This is part of why God is in his own category because he has all these omni attributes. Omni is just a Latin root, a Latin prefix that means universally or all, 
So when we say that God is omnipresent, that means he is all present. That means he is universally present. He is present throughout the universe. When we say that he is omnipotent, potent is part of that word. Omni is the other part of that word. Potent means powerful. Omni means all. We're saying that God is all powerful, but we're not. We're not all powerful. We're not all knowing. We're not all present or universally present. We are finite creatures by God's design. And that might be difficult for some of us to come to terms with sometimes. Sometimes the expectations that we have for what all we can accomplish, what all we can reasonably tackle, uh, need to be calibrated. That can be difficult when advances in technology and then also pushing and pulling by competing interests in our lives, competing priorities in our own hearts and minds, make us think that we can do more than is reasonable. And when sometimes what we can actually accomplish is a sliding scale because our capabilities expand, because we find labor-saving instruments and devices and techniques and practices. But however much we augment our ability, we never are going to get to omni, nor should we desire to. Actually, it's hubris. The Greeks talk a lot about this in their mythology. They have a lot of their mythology directed at the problem of hubris. Kudos, good. Hubris, always bad. If you get puffed up, you get ahead of yourself and you get a little full of yourself and you start thinking that you are a god, that's when the gods decide that your number is up and they're going to bring you down to size, possibly even smite you. Well, so also with us, we have to have humility in our appraisal of our capabilities. And sometimes that is the cure to anxiety. Sometimes that's the cure to depression. Sometimes that's the cure to frustration. Sometimes that's the cure to a dilemma. Hey, I'm being asked to commit to X, Y, and Z all at the same time, but I think that would spread me too thin. And I'm only one person. I cannot do all these things. So again, back to the question of priorities and how do we break ties? How do we find the tiebreaker? Within... The everyone else category, we have, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But who, who is my neighbor? And if I, can't, if I can't love every neighbor that I have with an equal amount, who do I start with? Where do I start? Well, first off, I want you to consider 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. Paul, hold on. What are you talking about? Denied the faith? Worse than an unbeliever? Oh, okay, maybe we should read that again. I, I want to make sure I caught it. I want to make sure that I'm, I'm hearing you right. Did you just say, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, his family, especially members of his own household, he's denied the faith? Did you just say that? What? That's outrageous. Well, actually, it's not. See, this is core to the conservative conception of society, especially the 
Christian conservative and the Western tradition conservative, but not even just Western. This is not a uniquely Western idea that you start with the family. The family should be the primary means of support for those of us who are down on our luck, which that's all of us by turn. All of us will have times where we are sick, where a business deal falls through, uh, employment comes to an end for whatever reason, we get injured, there's an accident, something unexpected happens and we need help. In this passage in particular, there's a lot of talk about widows and who should be taking care of widows and how that should be handled. You know, We don't want unmarried women just mooching on the church, for instance. Actually, their primary source of support should come from their family. And in particular, their primary source of support should come from their husband, if they're married and their husband is still living. Also, too, you know, if we're talking about brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law and grandparents and children who are grown and what have you, all other things being equal, the first people responsible are those who are direct relatives. So for instance, it doesn't take a village to raise a child. It takes a mom and a dad. It takes me and my wife. And it isn't just, well, hey, you know, we're all responsible. You have a responsibility as well. I say that, and then I have an excuse to abdicate my responsibility. No, first and foremost, my responsibility is to provide for my wife and my children. And also to, however much responsibility you might have with regards to, you know, if you see my wife or my children in a difficult spot, you know, flat tire on the side of the road, you have a responsibility to stop and help them, stop and help my wife change the tire, for instance. You see one of my children getting into trouble or about to be hurt or injured, you jump in and help them. However much that could be true, first and foremost, those things are my responsibility to look out for and think of. When it comes to paying grocery bills, first and foremost, my job is, as an able-bodied man, as the head of my household, to provide. Uh, when my parents, when my wife's father are too old to take care of themselves anymore, they are not the community's responsibility first and foremost. They are my responsibility first and foremost. They are my brother's-in-law's responsibility first and foremost. They are my brother's responsibility first and foremost. We have a responsibility to take care of the members of our own household. And if we don't, if we abdicate on that, we're worse than an unbeliever. So this is actually a very, very important way in which we demonstrate that we believe. We're not saved by taking really good care of our wife and our children, our brother, our sister, our brother-in-law, our sister-in-law, our niece, our nephew. No. But if we refuse to provide for their needs, if we refuse to show any concern or help them when they ask for help, when they need help, we are worse than an unbeliever. Not just an unbeliever. You're worse than an unbeliever, actually. And what's, what makes you worse? The fact that you're professing Christ, but ignoring your responsibility to these people that you have 
a responsibility too. First and foremost, when my relatives are on hard times and they ask me for help, it's my responsibility, especially members of his household. That's an interesting phrase there. It says, especially for members of his household. That means it's not limited to members of his household. You know, my dad calls me up and says, hey, I need a ride back from the mechanics. I need to drop the van off and have them take a look at the transmission. It's just, it's not right. I need to get it fixed so I can sell it. Could you pick me up and take me home? And I say, yes. And why do I say yes? Because he's my relative. What I don't say is, I don't say, well, I really don't feel like it. And why don't you call so-and-so? Well, why don't you go and ask your next door neighbor? No, no. First and foremost, it's my responsibility because I'm his son. And especially if my wife calls me, if my wife calls me and says, hey, car broke down or I ran out of gas or I got a flat tire or whatever, I don't say, well, why don't you just call so-and-so? You know, unless I'm completely indisposed, I just cannot get there quick enough. I can't get there in time. No, if I have any ability to rearrange my other priorities and get there and be there and make it happen, that's my responsibility. But not just to my wife, not just to my children, also to my extended family, I do have a responsibility. And this is, I mean, quite quite frankly, this is one of the biggest things that I have been frustrated about with some of my extended family. And I won't name names, but if they are listening, they'll know who they are. Some of my extended family are extremely well off. And the closest they've ever come to helping is to criticize. They're very well off financially, and they have seen us struggle for years, for years and years. And the closest they've come to lifting a finger to help, to alleviate our struggles, was to criticize. Almost always, not to our faces, but to others in the family, or to, let's say, for instance, my dad, early on in our marriage, that's, I mean, that, I, you can pray for me. I need to let it go and I need to forgive. But that has been a sore spot for me for years and years that there were certain of my extended family who were very materially comfortable and well off, whose only contribution when my wife and I were struggling trying to make ends meet was to go to my dad and say, hey, I think you should stop helping them. I think you're creating dependence. Hmm. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I'm just going to leave that there and move on. <clears throat> your father and mother are obviously included in your relatives, especially if they're living with you. If they're living with you, they are members of your household. But even if they're not, it says, especially for members of his household. Colossians 3.20 says, Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. We need to understand when children is talking about developmental stage and when children might be understood rightly or wrongly by us or meant by us in common conversation as just offspring. You are a son or a daughter. You're going to be 
your mother and father's children forever, for the rest of your life, however old you get. Even when you're 65 years old, you're still going to be your mother's baby. You'll always be her child. Well, there's a sense in which that can be true, but there's also an important distinction we need to make. It is not healthy. It is not healthy if you are 65 years old and your 85-year-old mother is still treating you like you're a five-year-old or a 10-year-old. That's not, that's not healthy. That's not what the scriptures are calling us to. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. That's speaking primarily to actual children. You are under authority. You are still living in their house. They own the house. They pay the utilities. They pay the mortgage or the rent or insurance on the car. Like You are their child and you need to obey them in everything, it says, for this pleases the Lord. This pleases the Lord. Again, we come back to that first category. Why are you doing this thing? Because God said so. And he's the one who's expecting and requiring it of you. And he's the one who created reality as we know it. And it will work well for us. We will have a long life in the land if we relate to it as he intended. Matthew 19.19 as well. This one I think is more generic. I don't believe that this is specific to children. Those who are young have not reached adulthood yet. I think this includes children and adults, but it says, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Honor your father and mother. So that's a more ambiguous, open to interpretation, uh, matter of principle. You know, obey your parents and everything. That can get really specific. Hey, I thought I told you no TV. You don't get to watch TV today. That's an appropriate thing that I might tell my eight-year-old daughter or my six-year-old son. That's not an appropriate thing. (laughs) I would expect my father-in-law, for instance, he would never do this, but I wouldn't expect my father-in-law to call up my wife and be like, hey, you know what? No TV for you today. It just, that, that is not going to happen for many reasons. You know, a major one being he just never would do that, but If you start seeing that kind of a dynamic in adult relationships, especially among Christians, and then it's tied back to biblical commands for children to obey their parents, whoa, 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 you know, slow down, back up. I think you missed your turn. (laughs) I think think some things are getting conflated here, and it, it could lead to some really dysfunctional, unhealthy ways of relating. And has. For instance, let's talk about husbands and wives. Specifically, what responsibility does a husband have to his wife? My wife is the closest neighbor I have and have ever had. You you can't get uh, any more neighborly than uh, we have the same address and even within the same address, we have the same bedroom. And within the same bedroom, we have the same bed. You can't get any more neighborly than that. That is as neighborly as it gets. Uh, as an aside, those old 
timey movies and TV shows where the censors didn't want to show a husband and his wife in the same bed together. So they would give them separate beds in the uh, scenes. You know, he's got his bed over here and she's got her bed over there. Like that's always just been a weird thing to my mind. Like why, why would anybody do that? Much less if they have completely separate bedrooms. That's super weird. I, you know, one is working days, one is working nights. That's a terrible setup. That's a terrible schedule. Don't do that. Do not do that. Bad idea. But Mark 10, 7 through 9. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what is this talking about? Well, for one thing, when my sons, I have seven, when my sons grow up and they marry a gal, I expect them to move out. And I'm hoping that with everything that we're doing with homeschooling and my tech high and extracurricular interests that we're trying to encourage in them, that already, you know, our oldest isn't even quite 15. He's almost 15, but he's not quite yet. We're already helping them to wrap their minds around what it's going to take for them to be able to support themselves. And when they find some lovely young lady, in the case of the boys, who will be men before we know it, uh, we, we want them to be prepared in all ways to be able to support their wife. We want them to be prepared mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Not necessarily in that order. I would probably say spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and then physically. I think the physically will be downstream of those preceding three categories. But what this is talking about is the right, proper response in all those spheres, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, for the man to leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. What's that phrase, hold fast, talking about? Well, it's not just talking physically. And neither, neither, <laughs> neither for that matter, is leave. You know, in order for, let's say, our oldest son to move out of the house and leave his mother and I someday, in a few years, maybe four or five years, maybe, if not sooner, in order for him to leave physically, he also has to leave in some sense, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. In order for him to hold fast to his wife, he has to leave in all those ways. Malachi 2.15 says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Here, this is talking about having children and being faithful to your wife and having children. G give her children. You know, she wants to have children. You have the ability to, but you want to spend all of your extra cash on your hobbies. Uh, I don't mean to be judgy, but as I read Malachi 2.15 here, I think you're being faithless to your wife. I think that's what this is saying. I think this is a scold and a reprimand to the men who are self-indulgent and they don't want to have any more kids. They want to have one and then they're done or they don't want to have any. 
would she have married you on the front end if she had known that you didn't want to have any children or you just wanted to have one and then you were done? You might need to think about that. Might You might need to revisit that. Just saying. Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this is a, a difficult one because women typically are more sensitive naturally based on estrogen levels versus testosterone levels. Women are typically less aggressive than men are. And men being aggressive and filled with testosterone as they are have to work at not being harsh with their wives when they're upset. That takes discipline. It takes self-control. That takes intentionality. It does not happen accidentally. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I can't tell you how many disagreements Lauren and I have had where I am trying to explain why I want us to do X, Y, and Z or why I don't want us to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm all animated about it. And I find myself trying to explain, like I'm, I'm trying to love you and the children and whatever and yada, yada, yada. And then I, I start listening to my own tone and I'm thinking like, I am not communicating love with my tone. I am not. I'm not. My words are saying one thing. My tone is saying something that might be just a little bit confusing. It might be undermining the words. I might mean it, but I also might need to refine my communication because I'm being harsh. I'm being overly aggressive because I'm fixated on whatever the issue is that we're trying to resolve and I'm losing the plot with regards to being gentle and kind with the weaker vessel. Speaking of 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The feminists freak out. Oh, how dare you pull out a chair? How dare you offer to take my coat? How dare you hold a door open for me? What do you think I am, weak? Well, yeah, actually, look at all of these... Uh, Sports records that are getting broken by men who are claiming to be women and competing. They are stronger, faster. They have more muscle mass. They're more aggressive. They are smashing your records and winning, hands down, even if they were only mediocre athletes when they competed as men. That's because you are the weaker vessel. That's not an insult. Just because you're physically weaker, just because you're emotionally more sensitive, that doesn't mean that you're less, doesn't mean that you're not heirs. It means you're suited differently. And thank God for that. God forbid that it only ever be the manly energy in the home or in the church or in the community or in society. But look at this. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so there's a rationale, there's a reason. Live with your wife in an understanding way why? Because she's an heir with you of the grace of life. She's an heir with you so that your prayers may not be hindered. And that's like, if anything is going to get you to pay attention, it's going to be something like this because this ties back again to the first category of love, the first category of relationship, which is God. So that your prayers may not be hindered. <clears throat> Correct me if I'm wrong, but I read that as God may not listen to your prayers. He may actually just tune you out, flat out. 
talk to the hand kind of treatment from the Almighty. You think you can be living with your wife in a dismissive, flippant way, in an inconsiderate way, disrespecting her, showing you show honor to her as the weaker vessel. You show honor to her. Now, that doesn't mean you worship her. You can't put her in God's category, but you show honor to her. Like on a Mother's Day, for instance, or on her birthday, you honor her. Hey, we're going to make hamburgers. What would you like us to do for lunch today? What is, what is special to you? What would make you feel special? Now, moving on, for you ladies, not that a whole lot of ladies listen to my podcast that I know of. It's pretty... Pretty lopsided. It's like 75% male, according to the metrics Spotify has for me. But since we're being all inclusive here, Ephesians 5, to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands. And I love that word own. <laughs> As if to leave that word out would... We would have all been debating it. There would have been church splits and new denominations formed and all kinds of just chaos without that word own. Or as if to say, there is a temptation in women to serve other men's preferences when they are serving their husband. As in, for instance, this book, Eve in Exile, that my wife just read, uh, which she spoke very highly of. I hope to read it at some point. But the author, who is one of Doug Wilson's daughters, I don't hold that against her, if anything. Uh, I think, I mean, I, I understand certain things. I might take certain positions or assertions, opinions, sentiments, with a little bit of a grain of salt thereby, but I like Doug Wilson, personally. But one of the things that she points out in her book is, with regards to this command from the Lord to wives, a wife should not be finding out that so-and-so's husband really loves such-and-such a meal. Oh, he just, oh, it's his favorite meal. And then presume from that that she's going to make it for her husband and he's going to be pleased by that. That might be his least favorite food group or flavor or whatever. Is she actually loving her husband well to serve him according to the preferences of some other woman's husband? No, actually. For that matter... I mean, for any of you, other than my wife, Lauren, for any of you who are listening to this and you are married, I mean, I hope, I would hope that you can learn some things about the psychology of husbands and fathers by listening to my stream of consciousness, my waxing eloquent about these various topics. I would hope that this is helpful to you, but... I would hope also, too, that if I say something with regards to something that I just really, really appreciate and enjoy about my wife, unless it's clear that there is a scriptural mandate there, if it's just a personal preference thing, oh, I just, I really love it when Lauren 
sews, for instance. I really, you know, I want her to spend more time sewing. Or I love that she is using this curriculum to teach our children. I love that she goes to these resources to figure out how to plan the coursework this coming year. You should not assume from all of that that in the specifics, how you will honor your husband, submit to your husband, is to take everything that I'm saying and then you do likewise. No, you you should submit to your own husband and hopefully I'm giving you some helpful ideas that you could run by him and you could say, hey, would, would you like it if I made X, Y, and Z for you? Actually, I, I think, I think Monica recently did that. Monica Chavez recently did that. JP's got his own you know, preferences and, and such for what he likes to eat. And so Lauren had been talking with Monica, two houses down, about something that you know, me and the boys and Evelyn just love when Lauren makes it, you know, food-wise. And so Monica's like, oh, yeah, that, you know, that sounds great. I should see if JP would be interested in that. And, you know, whether he is or he isn't, that right there, that's, that's it in a nutshell, right? She goes to JP and she says, hey, what do you think? Would, would you like me to make this sometime, make this meal or this dish or something like that? Would you, would you like that? And if he says yes, well, then she's loving him. She's serving him well. If he says, actually, no, that I, I really don't like that food or I don't like that flavor, or I don't, I don't think that would go well together. No, could you do this, or could you take out this ingredient, or could you, you know? Well, then, there, there you go, right? That's what this is talking about. But it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. Ask the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, which, that's a hard pill for feminists to swallow. It just it just is, but that's that, that's what it is, right? Our, our subjection there is part of how we are subjecting ourselves to God. And actually, even the next passage I've got listed here speaks to a common uh, question, objection <clears throat> that feminists have inside and out the, outside the church. First Peter 3, 1 to 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. There's that word again. Your own, <laughs> your own husbands. Your own husband. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Boom. Even if he's not quite where he should be, you might actually influence him. You might actually win him over because you're demonstrating for him how he should be submitting to the Lord. If he's not living for the Lord, he's not living under authority. Actually, truth be told, it's not a question of who's in authority and who's under authority. We are all, if we think rightly, we are all under authority because we are all belonging to God, owing to God, love with everything we've got. But wives model that, and there's an emphasis placed on that, even if the husband is objectionable. Now, I would say whenever there's a question of abuse or neglect, 
We go right back to 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And church discipline is absolutely an appropriate response. It's a needful, necessary response if the husband is claiming to be a Christian and he is neglecting or abusing his wife and his children, it is appropriate for the church to step in and say, hey, guy, you can't neglect your wife and your children. You can't. That is not you obeying God. That's not you being super spiritual. That's actually you being worse than an unbeliever. Truth be told. First Timothy 5.8. Now, moving on to another category. What about when loving your neighbor as you love yourself means your children. You know, besides my wife, there is nobody on God's green earth who is as much my neighbor as my children. In fact, Andrew shares our room with us. He goes to sleep in the pack and play at night. And usually by the morning, I wake up and find that he is in our bed because we do the co-sleeping thing. Yeah, I know. Some people think that's dangerous or whatever, but don't take sleeping pills. Simple, easy. Haven't had a problem with it so far. Don't know how anybody would function otherwise. Sometimes I wonder if advice like that against co-sleeping actually is just like a very, very subtle way of trying to curb population growth. But that's a topic for another day. Fathers. Okay, here again. Fathers, husbands, men. You set the tone for your family. You set the tone for how your children are raised. Here again, going back to the wives submit to your own husbands, whether we're talking about the man of the home, the man of the house, exercising authority over his wife or his children, providing for the needs of his wife or his children, his own household, or we're talking about the wife loving her husband, loving her children. The father is setting the tone. The husband is setting the tone. Submit to your own husband. That includes with regards to disciplining the children, with regards to giving them instruction and giving them chores and following through with those chores and making sure that the chores got done. That includes instruction and diet and activities and permissions. So, for instance, if I say, hey, Eli or Solomon or Daniel, they're off electronics for the rest of the day or for the rest of the week. They did not fulfill their responsibility here or they did lash out at their brother or their sister or they did say something just really disrespectful or they're just not paying attention or I think they're too spread thin. If I say that to my wife, then, and this is the way that it works. I mean, it's just, this is a good principle for parenting is get on the same page and stay on the same page and provide consistency in discipline for your children. But if I say, hey, honey, this one of our children is off electronics, no video games, no computer games, no watching TV, none of it, like until tomorrow or until next week because they they need discipline, they need correction. For one, Ephesians 5.22 to 24, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2, she should submit to that. She should accept that decision, that leadership. But... Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3, 21, also very similar, slightly different. Fathers do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Ooh. 
So with that, a father might say, well, I need to teach my child discipline. And it's kind of like, but different, but it's kind of like the command, which a husband who is claiming authority needs to recognize the need for when he himself is under authority, under God's authority. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Well, so also don't be harsh with your children either. You shouldn't be harsh with your children. Don't provoke your children to wrath. What does that mean? Well, it means a couple things. One, you're not annoying them on purpose just because you've got power. You're not tormenting them. You should not torment your children just because you have authority. A big question you should be asking is, if they start treating other people that they're bigger than the way that I'm treating them, am I going to discipline them for it? Am I going to call them out for it? If so, I shouldn't be treating them that way. Unless it is specifically a question of, like, hey, I am in authority and I am giving you discipline here. But if I'm just being mean or cruel or picking on them and it's upsetting them because they feel frustrated because they can't really do anything about it, that's wrong. That's sinful. That's wicked. Fathers should not relate to their children that way. And you can't hide behind, well, I'm just trying to toughen them up and I'm just trying to... If they're getting extremely frustrated and discouraged and depressed and feeling beat down whether we're talking verbally, whether we're talking emotionally, physically, to where they're discouraged, they're angry, you might need to reevaluate. Now, on the other hand, my child's throwing a fit because he wanted ice cream. And I said, no, you can't have ice cream because you didn't finish your dinner. He gets all worked up, my three-year-old, almost four-year-old. He gets all angry. Did I mess up as a parent because he's angry? Not necessarily. Now, if I'm trying to get him more and more angry because I just think it's fun, I think it's funny, well, that could be a real problem because am I actually disciplining him? Am I bringing him up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord or am I tormenting him? That's a big question. I have a responsibility to love my child well because I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. Luke 11, 11 to 13, I think is also instructive here. What father among you, Jesus asks, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, <laughs> it's just, just great. Jesus is like, by the way, you guys are bad fathers. You're bad. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So here's another really important principle of what it means to love your child, to love your children. You give them good gifts. And when they ask you for something reasonable, something that they need, or even just something that they want that would be good for them, you try to make that happen. Now, we just recently built a basketball hoop in the backyard. And before we bought the basketball hoop, which just so happened to coincide with Daniel's birthday, how about that? Daniel and Evelyn had brought me a handful of cash. And I think it was about 100 bucks, thereabouts. And they had found a basketball hoop on Amazon that they were interested in buying. 
And so he's got this handful of cash and he's asking if I could go ahead and order this basketball hoop. And I'm looking at it. I'm looking at the reviews and I'm looking at the quality of it. And I'm thinking, son, like, I don't like you can, it's up to you, but I would really encourage you to keep on saving up your money and see if some of your other brothers would go in with you on buying a nicer one, because I don't think this one's going to be quite, I, I don't, I, I think you'll regret it and you would be better served to save up and buy a nicer one. And so he accepted that and went away. And then I'm thinking about it and I'm watching our kids go across the street and borrow Paul's, our neighbor Paul's basketball hoop. And I'm concerned about them being in the street, crossing back and forth, especially John and Enoch and Evelyn, not so much the older ones, but the younger ones who are shorter and who aren't always as observant might get distracted. Very concerned about them possibly getting hit by a vehicle in the street. So I surprised everyone and we went to Shields and we bought a good quality, not top of the line, not most expensive, not, you know, the biggest and the bestest money can buy, but I bought the nicest and expensive one that they had. I'll put it that way. And that is part of the way that I love my children. Well, before God, I gave them a good gift. They asked me for a fish and I didn't give them a serpent. They asked me for an egg. I didn't give them a scorpion. That's what God's like with us. That's also how we're supposed to be with our children. Continuing on down, outside of our immediately blood relative household, we also have the household of faith, as it's described. Galatians 6.10. So then, Paul writes, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And here he's talking about Christians. Christian brothers and sisters, do good to everyone, especially your fellow Christians, especially. So like I was saying earlier, I've got neighbors all over the neighborhood. I can't know all of these people intimately and well and deeply and profoundly. I don't have time for that. I don't have the energy for that. But our neighbors two houses down are believers They're raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, fear and instruction of the Lord. They are of the household of faith. So let's suppose we have some cookies and we've got some some extra cookies, fresh baked. Now we could just pick a random house on the street and say, hey guys, hey boys, why don't you run these cookies down to that house? We could do that. That's fine. Do good to everyone. Or... We could say, especially to those who are of the household of faith, hey, why don't you guys run down to the Shabazzes and just see if they would like some of these cookies. And they do that in turn for us, and that's great. And that's biblical. Ephesians 2, 19 to 21 also. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, what about outsiders? What about those who are not part of the household of faith? Philippians 4, 4 through 7, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. 
let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, pay special attention. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Everyone. Inside the church, outside the church. Pretty all-encompassing. Pretty comprehensive. Everyone. Let your reasonableness. And it's juxtaposed with anxiety. Be reasonable. Don't be anxious. Be reasonable. Don't be flighty. Don't be always in a tizzy and panicked. Be reasonable. Don't be stubborn and hard-headed and belligerent and short-tempered. Be reasonable. Don't be proud and oversensitive and too easily offended. Be reasonable. And let everyone see, demonstrate it, make it clear. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Also, 1 Corinthians 5.12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 1 Peter 3.13-17. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 1 Timothy 3.7 Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Paul writes concerning qualified candidates for overseers, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Romans 13.7-8 Pay to all. What is owed to them? Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. First Peter 2, 13-17 Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Jeremiah 29.7 as well speaks of civic duty, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Lastly, Proverbs 14.34, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So what's the big idea here? Well, the big idea is it doesn't matter if they deserve it. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they've earned it. It doesn't matter if you want to, especially based on their conduct and their attitude and their actions doesn't matter if they chatter foolishly because they are foolish people and out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. It doesn't matter if they slander you because we're told that they will slander you. They may give you all sorts of human reasons to be anxious. You respond by being zealous for what is good, answering questions with gentleness and respect, being on your best behavior, being reasonable, offering prayer and thanksgiving when you make your requests known to God, being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, seeking the welfare of the city, praying 
for it. And lastly, we read that righteousness exalts a nation. You know, if you are living a righteous life, if you are living a righteous life, loving your wife well, loving your children well, loving God, loving the household of faith, taking care of the needs of your own household, if you're doing that, you are living a righteous life. That will seek the welfare of the city. That will exalt the nation. That will put worthless critics to shame. They'll, they'll be the ones. that They will be the ones looking silly and foolish, as they should. Don't give them anything to criticize you with, to justify their bad behavior. Be on your best behavior. And when people who are undecided catch just a glimpse of what's going on, they'll know you're faultless. And the testimony about God, the gospel, God's grace will win out. Now, within this, I think you can have instances where it's difficult, like I said, to know how to square these things. What if there are competing interests? What if I feel like my responsibility to these people here conflicts with my responsibility to those people over there? Well, to that, I would say, if it appears as though I cannot serve both my wife and these other people in the neighborhood, but my wife needs me to go and help her because she's got a flat tire, but I agreed to go help the neighbors down the street. My first responsibility is to my wife. Let's say my children are misbehaving. They're just wild and crazy, and they're running roughshod over my wife. I'm living with my wife in an understanding way. I'm going to run interference and I'm going to discipline my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, which will include teaching them to honor their father and their mother, to obey their father and their mother. Let's say I have an opportunity to either go and serve a family from church, which needs some help. They're moving, for instance, and it's a lot They've got some health issues, but we could really chip in and make it happen quickly, take a lot of stress off, take a burden off, help bear their burdens. Or I could go volunteer at the soup kitchen, and it's going to be just anybody and everybody. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with volunteering at the soup kitchen, but I can't be both places at the same time necessarily. So if I have a choice to make there, I look at Galatians 6.10. As we have opportunity, that's an important qualifier. You don't always have opportunity. Let us do good to everyone. Okay, cool. That doesn't answer my dilemma. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. Ah, okay. So maybe I help the family from church move. Maybe when they need something dug out in their backyard, because they got some kind of a clog in their septic system, their drainage system, maybe I go help them spend the day there. As an adult child, and I've heard of I've heard of this one. I want to move us, but my parent or her parent doesn't want us to move. But if we did move, I would be able to provide better. This actually happened. This actually happened 
when we moved to Montana from Ohio. So is my wife's first responsibility to please her mother or to submit herself to her husband? As she figured, biblically speaking, her first responsibility was submit to her husband. Or for my part, let's say, and I'm not to, I'm not trying to imply that you know my dad, for instance, is uh, unreasonable with regards to this. But you know, for instance, he moves down here from Montana, and as I said in a recent episode, I get a job offer from South Carolina. If we move across the country to take a job offer in a lower cost of living area, and I know that that would displease him, but it would benefit and it would bless, it would provide well for the needs of my own household, and I need to do that or else I'm worse than an unbeliever. Well, the tiebreaker is a man will leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, hold fast to his wife. Sorry, Dad. Feel free to follow us out there or come visit. Hopefully we can get a nice big house. I'm not saying we're moving, by the way. Just to be clear. But but if it comes to that, when there's a fork in the road, my first responsibility is not just to exercise authority over my wife and my children, but to provide for them. I have this authority because I have a responsibility. Let's say we've got small group or youth group or church on a Sunday morning. Someone is not feeling well or they're just like, hey, we need to rest. We've been doing too much. We're tired. We've got too much going on. You're sick. Yes, we could go without you, or we could stay here and take care of you, help you rest, help you recover. Now, there's limits, obviously, but we had this happen here recently when Lauren was pregnant with Andrew still. Come down to the last several weeks, it's too early to safely have him born, so we stayed home. Some people look at that askew. Well, it says, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together as some do. Yeah, it does say that, and that's true. But it also says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially the members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What is that provision? Well, it's all the basic necessities, like, for instance, food, shelter, clothing, safety, rest. If my wife needs rest, we're going to rest. If my children need rest, we're going to rest. For that matter, you know, I've talked with a number of people who have had opportunities to move to other places, and I don't know their situations, but I could easily see a similar sort of a conversation springing up with people that we love dearly at Summit View, at our church here in Greeley Evans, where an opportunity comes up to move. The Lord has opened a door, and he's closed doors here. And if, for instance, for example, hypothetically, I let it be known that we were going to move to South Carolina, but it would mean, obviously, necessarily, not living here, not being close, not being a part of this local body in the same way, hopefully still keeping in touch, but not in the same way. I do think that some, well-intentioned though they might be, would burden us and say, well, but you have a responsibility to this church. You you need to just figure out how to make it work to stay here. And to that, I would say, actually, first and foremost, I have to figure out a way to make it work that I provide for my family. And they are part of the church. And actually, all other things being equal, they are my closest neighbors, and I have to serve them first. 
Somebody outside the church might look at that one way or the other and get a certain impression of our Christian testimony if either A, our priorities are out of whack and they see dysfunction and they see conflict and they see anxiety. That's not, I don't think, a good testimony. I think that harms our testimony. I think it harms Christian testimony, for instance, when parents who profess to be Christians place an undue burden on their children. Not to say this is happening to us, but I I know personally, friends and family who've had this happen, that they have a, an undue burden placed on them by a parent or a parent-in-law that you must do X, Y, and Z because that's what I want you to do. And I'm going to fall back on honor your father and mother, obey your father and mother, even at the expense of wives, submit to your husbands in everything. Be subject to your own husband. Or, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That ought not to be. I think sometimes churches can put an undue burden on their members to put the needs of their own households second or last. We can guilt trip, if we're not careful, our brothers and our sisters. And instead of bearing their burdens, we can add to their burden in a selfish way, in a self-serving way. And I don't think that that's a good testimony to outsiders. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Well, that includes how you weigh in on other people's situations. Let's suppose you go to a coworker who's not a believer and they hear you casting aspersions on so-and-so for not making it to small group or youth group, for paring down on certain ministry uh, commitments because they're focused on their family right now. They need to circle the wagons a little bit more. They got some things that they're trying to work through. Does that unbelieving coworker of yours hear you saying that and think, wow, that's really impressive. <laughs> I am really, man, you're very reasonable. <laughs> no, of course not. Now, on the other hand, if they hear you saying, hey, we had a guy who was volunteering at a high level. We had some gal who was volunteering at a high level, but their mother got sick and they needed to step away so they could take care of her. Or their husband's work schedule changed dramatically and they were trying to be supportive. Or their child is working through some stuff and they they just need to spend some more time as a family together and not be showing up necessarily every time there is something going on at the church. Now, if there's an understanding, is an outsider going to hear that and say, well, that's very reasonable? I think so. And they're going to say, well, good on you. And they're probably also going to say, where do you go to church again? Yeah. You know, we've been looking for a church. I think, I think we'd like to visit yours. You know, I had a conversation with my good friend, dear friend, brother. My kids call his cousins. So that has to make us brothers or our wives, sisters, or both and, which I'm good with. But Officer Luke Bergman, dear friend, I was telling him about 
the potential, just, again, it's just, I want to emphasize, it's just a potential. Not bragging about tomorrow. God willing, we live and do this or that. But the potential of a job offer in South Carolina. And I was explaining to him, I said, yeah, the cost of living there is 20% less. Median home cost is $200,000 less. We're talking the difference between three hundred and seventy-seven and one hundred and seventy-nine thousand. It's a huge difference. I'm having an engineer's title dangled in front of me. Man, that's it's hard to ignore. And he looks me square in the eyes. He says, "You know what? A few years ago, we had to move to Greeley from Denver for the exact same reasons. Like we just could not afford to live there. We could not afford to buy a house. Couldn't even afford rent anymore." You have to be able to afford to house your family, clothe your family, feed your family. And dare I say it, sometimes if that's all you can barely, just barely, barely afford, sometimes you have to dip into the credit cards even to make that work. And you can't afford ever to get some other token, some other good gift, like a, well, I don't know, basketball hoop, for instance. You need to start thinking outside the box. You need to start looking at, are there some other lower cost of living areas that we could go to? And that's where we're at. He says, you know, not everybody's going to understand that, but don't let that weigh you down. I get it. You got to do what you got to do for your family. You have to. It would break our hearts to see you go. We don't want to see you go. But first and foremost, your responsibility is to your wife and your children. And anybody who doesn't understand that, well, that's just too bad. They're not being reasonable. They're not being fair. Before God, biblically, According to his word, this is what your priority should be. So I look at that and I think to myself, Luke Bergman, you're letting your reasonableness be known to all right now. Good on you. And thank you. You just bore my burdens with me. Sometimes you can't please everybody. And sometimes you have to make some hard decisions, make some hard calls. And by God's grace, God provides. We don't need to be anxious. Again, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. So we're praying. We're giving thanks for what we have. Letting our requests be made, to, made, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts. That, just as it's promised. I trust that. For you young guys, I want you to be thinking about this. Whether you're my sons or you're just young men that I know. I want you to be thinking about this as you are entering into adulthood, as you're orienting your work life, as you're building your relationships with people around you, build in a wise way, set the expectations, manage the expectations from the get-go on the front end, make sure everybody's clear and it will go well for you. There's a blessing in that. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. That was a lot, but... I think it was worth it. I think it was well worth it. Now, for anybody who's made it this far and you're thinking to yourself, man, Garrett, like this is really good stuff, but also really long. You should have broken this out into two or three episodes. I just want to throw in one last little thought. Uh, you know, I was listening to Andrew Clavin the other day, his podcast slash show at the Daily Wire. I like Andrew Clavin. Andrew, if you're listening, uh, I don't agree with you on everything, but I, I appreciate what you're doing and you're a funny guy, uh, and, and you've got some really good insight. But, uh, you know, his episode, I was telling Lauren, 
I said, his episode's an hour and 30 minutes long. I didn't listen to all of it, but I really did not mind that it was an hour and 30 minutes long, even though I only got through 45 minutes of it and then had to stop. I really did not mind. Actually, if anything, I kind of like that there was more to it that I could have gone all the way to listening to the rest of. And there, you know, for that matter, there are times where I listen to episodes that I've recorded as I'm doing the QC quality control thing, making sure that, you know, I can stand behind everything that I said. I don't need to go back through and edit anything out that is not quite true on further reflection or not quite helpful, not quite proper. But there are times where I listen back through episodes and I think, man, that felt really short, you know? So hopefully you feel like this was time well spent. If you haven't yet, please hit subscribe. Also, please leave a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to this on. Share it with some friends. I mean, this question of relationships, that is a central question when it comes to living a godly life, living a wise life, making good decisions. Having good relationships is a very, very important part of life. We were not made to live in isolation, made to live in relationship and community. But that can be a challenge. And by God's grace, we can figure it out. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.